you know, it was a very momentous occasion for me when I got my driver's license. <laughs> I was 16 years old, and where I lived at the time, and, and back then, I'm not going to tell you when, but, you know, back a long time ago, that was one of the major things of your life. I don't know if people still think about that, but for, for me at that time, it was. It was very important. It was like I was coming of age, right? And I had longed for that license. I wanted to be able to drive since I was like seven or eight years old. That was really important to me. It represented not only maturity, which is something really I didn't understand very well then, but also freedom. It, under, you know, it was a sense of self-determination. I could get and drive and go. Because think about it, back then there were no electronic devices, you didn't have a cell phone, you know, nobody knew where you were, but also if your car broke down, you could, it was hard to get help too. In order to get my license, I had to study a book that had the rules of the road and something that they gave us in order to take the exam. Uh, sure, it wasn't every rule, but it was most of the rules that were important to know in order to be a good driver. After I became a driver, had my license, and would go out, whenever I would leave home for the evening or at other times, my parents would say, drive safe, drive safe. Now, they didn't need to remind me of everything I was supposed to do uh, and all the rules I was supposed to know, although sometimes they would. They would say, don't speed, you know, don't go to places you shouldn't go, be respectful of other drivers and all of that. But really, when they would say, be safe, that was like a catch-all phrase. But it was also a blessing, right? Something we said to our own children when they learned to drive. It's something I say to my wife, Susan, when she leaves home. I say, be safe, be safe. It calls to mind all that is required to drive well, and it also invokes a blessing for protection. Because the rules aren't just about the rules. They are about safe and productive travel for all involved. That's what, that's what we really want. Well, Jesus is asked a question about rules. Which is the greatest commandment? And they ask him this in order to test him. They're trying to trick him. But it's the kind of thing that rabbis did all the time. It's how they debated and they honed their knowledge of the law in this way. This law that was handed down from Moses. Which by that time, Jesus' time included 613 different rules that you had to keep. And all of the interpretations of those rules. That's a lot. And it, 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 spent, it took all the time for the legal experts to study this and to teach it. Now remember that this conversation occurs in Jesus' final week. He has entered Jerusalem. And he enters the temple courts to teach. He's engaging religious leaders. And they are eager to find a way to discredit him. Or to even to have him killed. So there's a lot riding on his words. His responses. In the book of Matthew, we, we have a couple of different interactions with leaders. Starting about chapter 1, and we've looked, at, we've looked at several of these. Jesus tells some parables, too, to answer the questions and the challenges that they put to him. But the encounter in the reading today that we have printed in the bulletin is the last one that he has with religious leaders. Because in chapter 23, his audience will change. He will no longer be speaking to religious leaders. He'll be speaking to the people. Fred Craddock, who is someone who was a, a teacher of the New Testament, he says in his final days, Jesus moves from his attention for all these religious leaders to the crowds, to his disciples, and then to the cross. 
So in response to the question today, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus gives a summary of the law's meaning and its intention. What is, what is it about? Why do we have all this? Well, it's to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And this is well known. This is actually taken from something called the Shema, which is a prayer that uh, every disciple, every Jewish person would have known and recited every day. In fact, they still do if they're observant. Jesus adds to this the command from Leviticus 19, to love your neighbor as yourself. He then declares that all of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. In other words, if you keep these, that is a way of honoring what isn't contained in the law. That's really what it's about. To love God with all that you have, and then to love others as you love yourself. It's about relationship, isn't it? Relationship with God and others. Now, Jesus probably isn't the first teacher to link these things. Uh, there were other rabbis that had, had suggested similar things or other kinds of pairings of ideas in the law. Jesus is appealing to the text in the way that Pharisees did. And they would have understood that. I think, you know, he didn't say anything that was controversial. What he does, though, is he puts these two ideas together and he links them. Love of God and neighbor. He puts them on the same footing. The Shema, which is central, right, to devotion, to daily devotion. It's now joined with the injunction to love neighbor as oneself. Jesus doesn't have to go through and list all of the different laws, different things about the law. He doesn't start ranking requirements. He just points to the law's purpose. It exists to allow relationship with God that's meaningful, that's rich, that's vital, that's redemptive. And that relationship then flows out of it to others. Scott McKnight has called this the Jesus Creed, loving God and loving others. And he says Jesus' disciples would have studied this every day. They would have reminded themselves every day that this is what it's about. This is what it is to be formed as God's people. It's how we're to be formed too. It's what we're to learn, to live into, to love God and to love neighbor. What does it mean to love God with all of our being? What do you think that's about? How do we do that? Well, in the Hebrew thinking that gets translated into Greek, the heart, when it says love God with all your heart, that was where emotions were and thought and choice. That's where they were centered. The soul has to do with life breath, the force that animates a body, that animates our feelings and our consciousness. And then the mind is about thinking and understanding. We may wonder what it means to love our neighbor. In fact, there's probably been more discussion around that and even disagreement about this. And, and remember, Jesus was asked one time, who is my neighbor? Well, a look at Leviticus 19, where the command is originally found, reveals that our neighbors are those who have food or financial insecurity, those who are sojourners, which I think we can read that as immigrants, those who are vulnerable in some way, those who face oppression, I mean, that's probably good enough to start with, isn't it? I mean, this, these are the neighbors that Jesus says we are to love. The next part of the passage here where he asks them a question, he turns and he asks the Pharisees a question, which is this, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? 
You know, that's really about Jesus' authority. It's reminding us that Jesus has the authority as Messiah to say, this is the greatest commandment. And the religious leaders, they can't answer that question. Right at the beginning of chapter 21, when he comes into the temple, they question his authority. By what authority are you doing this and saying these things? And then he has these number of interactions with them, and it ends, his, his time with the Pharisees ends with him saying, okay, you tell me, you answer this question for me, and they can't answer it. Jesus has established his authority. And in that silence there where they can't answer, we hear Jesus' words ringing about loving God and loving neighbor. I know we've heard this before. You've heard it. We've, you know, we've, we've seen it on signs. We see it on uh, you know, posters and things like that. Love God and love others. But is it possible for it to have fresh authority for us and appeal? In other words, it's an old idea. We've heard it so many times. Is it, is it stale or is it something that can be fresh? Do we understand this is really our vocation? This is really our calling as followers of Jesus. This is the summary, the creed, if you will, that gives life. Life to us and life to the world. I think sometimes the way the church tends to live these things out is we, we, we split these things. We separate them by tradition, depending on what part of the church that we're in. Some churches really focus on loving God. Study of scripture, personal piety, holiness, doctrinal purity, and so on. Keeping oneself unstained by the world. Then I think are there other churches that just... They really, their emphasis is focusing on the neighbor, social justice, meeting needs, advocacy, and so on. Well, Jesus doesn't separate these. He brings them together. They're meant to be in relationship. In fact, one flows from the other. It flows from God to neighbor, but it does flow. And the love of neighbor has its source in loving God. The more we truly learn to love God, the more we will be drawn to and empowered to love God. Others. Henri Nouwen is a person that I've read a lot and I appreciate his insights. He's now um, passed away and he's with God. But he said this about this particular subject. He said, all the great saints in history about whom I have read have been people who were so passionately in love with God, they were completely free to love other people in a deep, effective way without any strings attached. True charity, he said, is gratuitous love, a love that gives gratuitously and receives gratuitously. It's following the first commandment that asks us to give everything we have to God and that makes the second commandment truly possible. In other words, if we don't do the first, we cannot do the second. If we don't love God fully and deeply and growing in that, We will not be able to love others as God is asking us to love them. You know, the church is where we're formed for these things. This is the the purpose of the church, part of the purpose of it, right? This is where we're formed to love God fully and to love our neighbor as God intends. And I think this is part of our uh, challenge at Redeemer and our desire to do at Church of the Redeemer is to lead us in loving God, but also in loving our neighbors. And if you just look at the last week, if you've been around Redeemer, just look through the activities of the last week, you'll see this. I mean, multiple worship services, time of prayer that we've been doing on Wednesday nights. We have a new Bible study, the book of James. We had a conversation on Tuesday night. Um, 
that was really about loving our neighbor. And then also our community groups. I mean, these are places where we're formed in loving God more fully and loving others. And then the times of fellowship that we have online. Also, the lectionary over the last few months has really been leading us into these, walking in these places of loving God more deeply and loving others. I mean, this is the heart of what we do. It's how the church exists to be the hands and the feet of Jesus. Our loving others flows from our relationship with God. The more we grow in our love for God and devotion to God, the more that we're able to love others. And the more that that love will resemble the love of God. And if I just want to help someone on my own, or I just want to make show appreciation for you or, or love to you or help meet a need, and, and, and if it's separated from my love for God, then that's going to be a really broken response. I mean, I'm going to bring all of my stuff, all my mess <laughs> into that. It could be really counterproductive. But if that reaching out is tied to the relationship I have with God in love, and I'm growing in that, and, we're, and I'm deepening my, my life in that, then more and more and more, the love that I show will look like God's love rather than my love. The world doesn't need my love. <laughs> the world does need the love of God through me and through you. So meeting the needs of others flows from this relationship, and it looks like the love and the character of God. What I mean by that is this. Responding to injustice in the world, right now there's a lot of injustice that we're seeking to respond to, well, that flows from loving God, and it looks like the love and the character of God. Sharing our faith with others flows from loving God. It looks like the love and the character of God. Meeting needs of others. People have needs in various ways, especially right now. Well, when we respond, that looks like loving God. It looks like the character of God. The more we love God, the more we're enabled to love others in ways that are truly selfless. In other words, it's not about me, and it's not about making me feel good. It's about truly reaching out freely and offering myself in the Lord. I want to share a couple of specific examples as I kind of close our time uh, that come from church history, and it's, and it's really around the times of plague and pandemics that uh, the church has, has known, that the world has known. You probably know that some of the first hospitals were built by early Christians to provide care to people. There, were no, there weren't other people doing this. I mean, the church did this to provide care during times of plague on the understanding that negligence that spread disease further was in fact murder. The Antonine Plague, Antonine Plague, second century, do you know that may have killed off 25% of the Roman Empire? Christians cared for the victims, and they offered a spiritual model whereby plagues were not the work of angry and capricious deities, but the product of a broken creation and revolt against a loving God. During another plague in the fourth century, the emperor Julian, who was a pagan, he had rejected Christianity. He complained about the Galileans, he called them, who were taking care of people who did not agree with their beliefs. Church historian Pontianus wrote that Christians ensured that good was done to everyone, not merely to the household of faith. 
Religious demographer and sociologist Rodney Stark says that there's a lot of evidence to suggest that in cities that had Christian communities that were active, the death rates due to plagues may have been half of that of other cities. When the bubonic plague reached Wittenberg, Germany in 1527, Martin Luther did not flee the city like many did, but he stayed to minister to his fellow citizens. His daughter Elizabeth died from the disease. He wrote something about this. He said that we die at our posts. Christian doctors cannot abandon their hospitals. Christian governors cannot flee their districts. Christian pastors cannot abandon their congregations. The plague does not dissolve our duties. It turns them to crosses on which we must be prepared to die. That's pretty strong, isn't it? And these are just glimpses a few different you know, historic examples of how the love for God transformed into love of others in times that might look a little bit like our own. And the ways to love are as variable as the need. You know, our world has so much need for love just now. Love can be serving. Love can look like listening. Love can look like learning. Love can be giving. But all of that flows from our heart for God. In discernment with the Spirit, marked by sacrifice and risk, not with self-satisfaction that we've done something good. So question, how might we grow in loving God? How can we deepen our love for the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? Because the further we go in, the deeper we find the love of God to be. So two questions as I close. What could that mean for us as a church? What could it mean to love God more? And secondly, what could that mean for others? What could that mean for others? So two things to think on this week. What could it mean for us to love more deeply the Lord? And what would that mean? What could it mean for others? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.